Uh, We're picking up where we left off, which means we're picking up in Isaiah chapter 21. And this morning, our our whole text is Isaiah chapters 21 to 23. Of course, we're not going to read all of those verses, but uh, Jen will come forward in just a minute to read for us a section from each of those chapters. Um, What these chapters really are is a message of God's judgment upon the world, and not just judgment in the time of Isaiah, but God's ongoing judgment of the nations of the earth who oppose him and are disobedient to him. And so, after reading from Isaiah, we'll read from Revelation 18, which quotes a great deal from this passage in Isaiah, and also talks to us about the ongoing judgment of the world. Then Ryan will come forward and read for us from 2 Peter, which gives to us a New Testament message about how do we, as those who trust in Christ, respond to this judgment that God is bringing upon the world. And then in John 16, 33, which Sharon will read for us, we hear about how we can have peace even in the midst of great judgments that come upon the earth. And so let me pray now for the reading of God's word and for my preaching of God's word that we would understand his word clearly And then I'll invite our readers forward. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word both proclaims to us the redemption that you have accomplished in your great love for us, and how your word also warns us and causes us to want to walk in obedience to you because of the judgments that are coming. So Lord, I pray that you would help us as we read these texts this morning to heed the warnings that your word gives to want to walk in your ways, and to find the rest that is only offered in Jesus Christ. So Lord, open your word to us now. Strengthen me, I pray, to to teach your word faithfully and clearly so that your people can be built up by your word, which is the only way that we as your people can be built up. And so in these ways, uh, God, cause us to glorify you in our faith in your word this morning and in our obedience to your word uh, throughout our lives ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jen, if you'd like to come forward now and read for us from Isaiah 21. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods. He has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts. The God of Israel, I announce to you. This is Isaiah 22, verse 5. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. Then 8b through 11. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it 
or see him who planned it long ago. And then chapter 23, verses 7 through 9. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Revelations 18, 1 through 8. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean, hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immortality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immortality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds, and the cup which she has mixed and mixed twice as much for her. To the, degree, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and I will never see mourning. For this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burnt up with fire. For the Lord God, who judges her, is strong. Second Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. John 16:33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace 
in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, as we continue uh, in Isaiah, I do want to begin just by reorienting us to where we've come from in Isaiah and where we are right now so that this doesn't just come out of the blue. And then after we've done some reorienting to Isaiah, we will uh, zoom in on the passages which we just read and see what God's word is to us this morning. Now, again, Isaiah the prophet was a prophet primarily to Judah, to the city of Jerusalem. And he was a prophet to Jerusalem in a time of great fear for the people of Jerusalem because Assyria was a very strong power to the north and every summer during campaign season they would come south and they would knock on the doors to Jerusalem and Jerusalem was very worried that it was just one summer away, one year away that Assyria was going to come down and wipe them out. And for that reason, Jerusalem, King Ahaz in particular, was sending out messengers to neighboring kingdoms saying, hey, maybe if we can all form an alliance, we can all gather together, then maybe we can be strong enough to defeat Assyria. And this is the main thing that the prophet Isaiah denounces Ahaz in Jerusalem for. As Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he comes to Jerusalem and he says, you should have trusted in the Lord your God. You should not have trusted in these other kingdoms around you. Don't you know that God is bigger and stronger and mightier than even Assyria, than any kingdom upon the earth? And why are you going to these little puny kingdoms around you thinking that they can protect you when I, God, am the one who decrees judgment upon these nations and judgment upon you in Jerusalem? This is the overall message that Isaiah has throughout his book. And so the way that we've seen that message play out thus far was in chapters 1 to 5. That's kind of the introduction to the book of Isaiah. That's Isaiah laying out the charges that God has against his people and against some of the nations around his people. And then in chapter 6, that's where Isaiah himself was called to be a prophet. He beholds the glory of God and then his lips are cleansed with a burning coal and he is commissioned to speak to God's people. And he is even commissioned in such a way that he is told that your speaking will harden the hearts of this people because God has already purposed judgment. And so Isaiah's words are just supposed to store up wrath for this judgment that God is ready to pour out. And then in 7 to 12, we really get to the first action of the book. In chapter 7, Isaiah confronts King Ahaz as King Ahaz is going out to inspect the the water sources for the city to see if they have enough to endure a siege that Assyria is going to bring upon them. And so Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and he confronts him about just the things that I have spoken, that Ahaz is not trusting in God, and that Ahaz is looking to every natural resource that is at his disposal to escape what Assyria is threatening to bring down upon him, when King Ahaz and God's people in general should be trusting in God. And Isaiah even came to Ahaz with a great offer. Isaiah came to Ahaz and said, "'Ask whatever sign you want.'" And God will prove to you that he is on your side. You can ask anything as high as the heavens, as low as the bottom of the ocean, and God will do it to show that he will deliver you. And when Ahaz is offered that, he says, Oh, I'm not going to test the Lord. I have this all figured out. 
And so he doesn't even ask for a sign, and he persists in his disobedience. And so in response to that, Isaiah says, God will give you a sign even though you do not ask for one. A virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And so for the rest of chapters 7 to 12, Isaiah is telling Ahaz and the people of God about how because of Ahaz's disobedience and the disobedience of so many kings that came before, the kingdom is going to be stripped away from Ahaz. It will be stripped away from the house of David, and someday it will be put in the hands of someone who is a branch from the stump of the root of Jesse. It will be put in someone's hand who will be a king forever and ever, who will be born of a virgin and whose kingdom will never end. And of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so it is a message both of judgment upon the people of the day, but it is also a message of great hope for what God is planning to a people who have rebelled against him and do not deserve it. And so now, We are in this larger section of Isaiah, which spans from chapters 13 to 27, where what Isaiah is primarily doing is he's primarily speaking still to the people of Jerusalem, and he is trying to make plain to them how God really does have power over every nation of the earth. He goes through nation after nation, explaining God's purpose for that nation and God's eventual judgment upon that nation. Again, still trying to persuade this nation of Judah that God is able to deliver them, that they don't need to trust in these other nations, but that God is in fact sovereign over the nations. And in all of these chapters, from 13 to 17, Isaiah is really striving to show Ahaz and those people around Ahaz two main things. First, he is trying to show these people that God is indeed over all, and that therefore they can trust in God more than anyone else. And then secondly, he's trying to show Judah that these other nations are doomed, and that any hope that they put And these other nations is ultimately destined for failure. Now, at first blush, this message of Isaiah, this context of Isaiah, doesn't seem to hold a lot for us, does it? After all, we live in the Assyria of our day, as it were. We are the strong nation. We don't fear other nations coming and taking us over. So how is it that this message of Isaiah can relate to us today? Well, as I was reflecting on it this week, it occurs to me that even though we do live in a very strong nation, and even though we don't need to fear any other sort of military takeover of the United States, it is nevertheless true that we live in a very fragile time. That even though we live in the midst of great abundance, great wealth, having almost everything we could wish for, everything we could want, we also recognize at the same time that much of this wealth, much of this goodness that we have is very fragile. It is very breakable. And I think we as a society in general are a very anxious society, a very fearful society about what could possibly go wrong. And I know that even in the church, there's many of us that deal a lot with fear and with anxiety about what the future might hold, about what might go wrong in days not far from now. 
We recognize the, how fragile so many of the systems are that our lives are built upon. It seems like whenever any crisis happens in the world, we are worried that everything is on the verge of falling apart. I remember it was just a couple months ago where one container ship got stuck in the Suez Canal. One container ship. And everybody started worrying about, are we going to have gas to fill up our cars? Is there going to be more problems of things that we cannot get because this one vessel blocked this canal? And we see this happening in a multitude of ways. There are many different ways that we recognize that gas stations may run out of gas. Even right now, in the news all week, we hear about the stores are running out of things to stock their shelves with, and nobody can quite understand why there's this big shortage going on. We recognize that if our electrical grid were to fall apart, then suddenly there would be no water coming from our taps. There would be no food in the grocery stores. We would not even have traffic lights to manage our traffic. Our society could fall apart in an instant. Again, not because any great and powerful nation comes and conquers us, but just because we recognize that the world we are in now is so complex. It's so complex that there is no one person that possibly understands all the different systems at play. And therefore, at any time, we think, well, one thing could go wrong. And if one thing goes wrong, then all of this abundance that we have around us now could fall apart. And I recognize that my own heart can get anxious about these things, not even on the grand scale of losing electricity or water, but even on a small scale of things breaking and me not knowing what to do about it. For example, even to write my sermon this morning, I used a computer that I have no idea how it works. And if it were to break, my only option is to go get a new one. And I had to use the internet to write it, which again, I don't understand the first thing about the internet. There are many times when it doesn't work. I don't know why it doesn't work. I just kind of restart things and cross my fingers that it works again. Again, my whole life and my well-being seem so fragile in light of these things that I cannot understand, that I cannot fix, that I cannot control. I drive a car everywhere, then I don't understand the first thing about the car that I drive. I put my money in a bank, and I have no clue where my money goes. I just kind of trust that it will be there when I come to draw some out of my account. And so at every level of our society, from the great big picture down to the everyday things that we use, we can recognize, we can feel this fear that Judah felt, that things may fall apart any moment. Indeed, it's easy to go on the internet and see people who will sell you great stocks of water or great stocks of food that you can keep in your basement just in case society all around us falls apart. It's a whole industry in our culture these days to give way to this anxiety, to this fear for the future that we all have because of the complexity that exists around us. And so the the question that we must ask and that Isaiah helps us to answer is just what do we as Christians do in the midst of this? What do we do in the midst of all this uncertainty and fear? One option, clearly, is to just be prepared, right? To stock up as much as we can, to try and get a generator so we have backup power to make sure that everything is in order just in case that falling apart happens. 
Another way to frame the same idea, I think, is to say that we should separate ourselves from this great, greater culture that's around us that is so fragile, and we should make our lives as secure as we possibly can. We should not intertwine our lives with the world around us, but rather separate ourselves so that we know we will be secure in that day of trouble. And yet, I believe that God would actually have us to continue to invest ourselves in this culture that's around us, even though it is fragile. And even though, as we will see, it is doomed to destruction. The prophet Jeremiah, when speaking to exiles in Babylon, a city that he knew judgment was coming upon, that he knew the city of Babylon was going to be wiped out. This is what Jeremiah says to God's people. He says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so we know that these systems around us are fragile and we may be fearful that they could fall apart very easily. But God's message to us in the midst of this is not to create some shelter for ourselves, some bunker that can never be broken into. Rather, God encourages us in the midst of this to seek the good of these systems, to support them how we can, to link ourselves with the world around us. As Jesus puts it, be in the world, just not of the world. And so we indeed take part in all of these things. And yet, as I said, we still feel the anxiety of being in the midst of this culture that we do know judgment will one day come upon. And so, my point is not that we should somehow separate ourselves from the culture around us, that we need to stock up goods and be prepared for the coming judgment. Rather, the answer to our problem, the solution to our worry, is that we need to fear God. We need to trust in God, not fear the world around us falling apart, not trusting in our own machinations, our own ideas to save ourselves, to secure our future, but rather trust in God. The question that we must ask ourselves is that in that day, when the judgment does come, in that, je- in that day when the systems of the world do fall apart, because the day will come when they all do fall apart, will we be like Job's wife, who when calamity fell upon Job, said, do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God and die? Is that what we will say to the Lord when the world around us falls apart? Or will we be like Job? who was able to say, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job, he suffered great calamity. He lost everything that he had, and yet even in that day, he was able to say, Blessed is the name of the Lord, even in the midst of such great loss. Beloved, that is the difference between peace and worry, between anxiety and knowing shelter. It's the difference between knowing God's love and His power and His goodness 
and doubting God and his ability to protect you. So again, this is the the larger point of chapters 13 to 27 of Isaiah. God's saying all of these things that to you look so rock solid, these nations that look immovable, things that have continued for hundreds of years that you think will continue on forever in the future, understand that God is over all of them and they will not continue on forever. That God is keeping accounts and a judgment will someday come. Now as we dive into 13 to 27 more closely, what we find is that chapters 13 to 27 itself is broken down into three sections. So the first section is what I preached on in my last message on Isaiah. That carried us from chapter 13 to chapter 20. And I believe that what that primarily dealt with was the judgment upon the nations in Isaiah's present day or in the very near future. So he was looking at nations right around Israel in that day and he was telling Israel what God's plan was for those nations. Nations like Assyria and Moab. Nations that Israel either trusted in to provide security or nations that Israel feared. And God's message for Judah with those nations around them was that God would be glorified and bring blessing upon people even in the midst of judgment for the nations for their sins. So that's the first section of 13 to 27, all of these judgments against the nations. So our section this morning is the middle section of this larger section. It's chapters 21 to 23. I I believe what's going on in these chapters is that Isaiah is looking to the more distant future of the world. Or you could say he's looking to the ongoing pattern of the world. And so the nations that he mentions are not nations that Israel will be worried about at their moment in time. Rather, they're nations that are just on the horizon. And in some cases, he doesn't even name the nation. He just alludes to the nation. And so I think he's speaking in terms that are more typological. Again, terms that are the ongoing pattern of the world and not to this specific specific historical situation that Isaiah is in. One reason why I believe that Isaiah is speaking in that way is because of how we've already seen that the words of Isaiah here in chapters 21 to 23 are themselves picked up word for word in the book of Revelation. And so we see there that Revelation is speaking of this ongoing course of the world where God brings judgment upon those who oppose him and he protects his people and he has the future day planned when Christ will return. And so Isaiah is speaking about our day today. The the course of history as it continues on day after day, night after night. And then finally, in the third section of these chapters, Isaiah 13 to 27, will be chapters 24 to 27. And that's what we'll look at next week. And that's where Isaiah looks to the very end of history and he sees how God will bring everything to a close. And again, the reason why Isaiah dwells on these things so long is because the people of Judah dwell on their doubts for so long. They dwell so long on who is more powerful than God. What can save us? What can make us secure? And so Isaiah repeats over and over how God truly is over all things, how he has a plan that cannot be thwarted. 
And so my prayer for you, even this morning, beloved, is that you will see how great God is. You will see how he has a plan that cannot be thwarted. And therefore you, as his child, do not need to be anxious for anything, even the crumbling of our very country itself. So as we look at 21 to 23, we see that we have this message from Isaiah of God's sovereignty, and in particular, of his sovereign judgment over the nations. We can see words of judgment if we just look at the very beginning of this passage. If you look at Isaiah 21, starting in verse 2, Isaiah says, A stern vision is told me. The traitor betrays, and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. Now, these are nations, again, that weren't in existence at this point in time. So Isaiah is looking to the future, and he's talking about the nations that will someday destroy Babylon. He says, Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the sighings she has caused, I bring to an end. So all the destruction that Babylon has caused, all the terrible things, I, God, bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. This is Isaiah again speaking. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. So feel the weight that Isaiah feels under this vision, under this vision of coming judgment. To him it is horrific, and he is bowed down so much that he says he cannot hear, he cannot see. But I don't know if any of you have ever felt anxiety about the future to that extent, where you actually start to have neurological problems that prevent your seeing and prevent your hearing, but this is what Isaiah was feeling. This was how heavy the word of judgment was It was coming. And so his heart was staggered and he was appalled. But then he looks out at these nations that have judgment proclaimed against them. And in verse 5, he says, they prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. They don't even know what's coming is what Isaiah is saying. They think everything is fine. And so, again, speaking to media and these other nations, he says, arise, O princes, Oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he saw, then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day. And at my post I am stationed whole nights, And behold, here come riders, horses in pairs. And he answered. So all this buildup about the watchman, here is what all the buildup is for. He answered, fallen. Fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods, he has shattered to the ground. Now when Isaiah spoke this, this was supposed to strike the people of Israel and every nation of the day like a lightning bolt. The idea that Babylon could fall. The idea that they were no longer mighty, that their carved images, that their gods 
would be cast to the ground. This is impossible for them to conceive. Again, just as we who live in America today, so often we may think that it is impossible to conceive that disaster would come upon us, that our whole way of life would fall apart. And yet, Isaiah encourages us to consider that, to consider that America is not the strongest force in all the cosmos. Rather, God himself is. And so, In verse 10, Isaiah closes this section of the oracle by saying, Oh, my threshed and winnowed one. Speaking to Jerusalem, Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Again, do you hear how the mighty have fallen? How what everything we think of as stable is falling apart? How Babylon, even while it is eating and drinking, laying out rugs, having a big party, that Babylon itself is on the verge of collapse. And so, Isaiah is the watchman that is set to declare to the nations that God is still in control, even though these mighty nations may have seemed for a short time to somehow wrestle control from God. And as we go through the rest of this passage, we'll see the same fate that God declared upon Babylon to be declared upon the whole earth, upon nation after nation. And so, for the rest of this message, the the burden that I have is this question for us as those who have trusted in Christ, as those who are living in the midst of this very fragile world. How are we to respond to these words of judgment? Are we just to fear? Are we to panic? Are we to stock up goods to try to find our own way out? I believe that the gospel teaches us to respond differently. And in particular, I want to highlight three ways that the gospel teaches us to respond to the coming calamity, to the coming judgment, contrary to how we see the nations responding here in Isaiah. So the first way, is that we must renounce our pride. The second way is we must hold fast to Christ. And then the third way is we must look to eternity. So we must renounce our pride, we must hold fast to Christ, and we must look to eternity. So first, the gospel teaches us to renounce our pride, to renounce our our self-sufficiency, to renounce the idea of looking to ourselves as possible saviors from judgment, as ones who could be secure. Now, this is the way that Isaiah speaks judgment upon Jerusalem in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this calamity. If you look at Isaiah 22, starting in the second half of verse 8, down to verse 11, Isaiah says, In that day, so in that day of judgment, You, talking to Jerusalem, in that day you look to the weapons of the house of the forest. The the weapons of the house of the forest just means a large armory that Solomon had built. It held a lot of weapons. So it says, you looked to this armory, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected waters in the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. 
So these are all the ways that the people of Jerusalem responded to this day of judgment, to this calamity that God had pronounced. They did everything they could to make their city more secure. They stored up water so that when the siege came, they wouldn't have any problem. They saw that the walls were breaking down, so they tore down houses to secure their walls. Again, they went to the armory to get weapons so that they could defend themselves. They did all of this, just feel the panic that must have been in Jerusalem as the people go about all these things, trying to find security, trying to find safety. But there was one thing that they did not do in that second half of verse 11. He says, but you did not look to him who did it, who called for this judgment. You did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. You see, beloved, they, they in their pride, in their self-sufficiency, thought, we can figure this out. God may have pronounced judgment, but, but surely if we're well prepared enough, then the judgment doesn't have to fall as heavily on us, Right? We can stock up enough things. We can make ourselves secure enough. We can get enough insurance. We can have enough savings. We can hope in the things of this earth enough and guard it enough that we will be safe and we won't have anything to worry about. And yet God says there is one big problem with this idea. He says, I am the one who is bringing judgment. I am the one who planned this long ago, and I am more powerful than all of your strategies for your own security. And if I declare judgment, then there is no human on earth, there is no power on earth that can stay my hand. There is no way you can be secure from my judgment, from my wrath. And so, beloved, the first call to us as God's people is to lay aside our pride, our arrogance, and thinking that we can make ourselves secure enough that we can escape God's judgment. We cannot, beloved. The only hope we have is in God. The only hope we have is in God. And beloved, the gospel itself teaches us to renounce pride, teaches us to renounce self-reliance. The very mechanism by which we are saved teaches us to say that we in ourselves are not sufficient, but God is sufficient. Listen to these words of Romans 3, 20-28. God's word says, By the works of the law, you could also read that by human effort, by our own preparedness, by our own works, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then hear these words of verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our self-ability, 
of our thinking that we have power, it says it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You see, beloved, in Christ, we recognize that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is no good works that we can do to save ourselves. There is no physical preparation we can do to save ourselves from the judgment. The whole reason why God sent Christ as the propitiation for our sins is so that we might look to him with eyes of faith, not to ourselves with eyes of works and preparedness. If we have looked to Christ with eyes of faith, then we have already confessed that we do not have it in ourselves to protect ourselves from God's judgment. But rather, our hope is in Christ alone and in his sufficiency. And so, beloved, do not boast, do not be arrogant, do not think that you can secure your own safety. Your safety can only be found in Christ And in him alone. And in Christ, scripture gives us great hope. And so this is the second lesson that we are to have in the midst of calamity, in the midst of judgment. We must learn that we are secure in Christ. Know that you are secure in Christ. Even if the world is falling apart, even if God himself seems to be stripping away from you every earthly thing that you have, your possessions, your family, your money, you are still secure in Christ, beloved. Again, part of what Isaiah is speaking in these chapters is he's speaking to people who think that they are secure in their wealth, who think that they do have what they need in order to be safe. Most of all, he speaks this of the nation of Tyre in chapter 23. And so if you look at Isaiah 23, verses 5 to 9, it says, When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coast, in this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away. This is how great, this is how secure the city is. The city of Tarshish was on the coast of Spain. Tyre was on the east coast of the Mediterranean. This was an empire that spanned across the whole width of the Mediterranean. They had founded colonies all along the coast of the Mediterranean. The great city of Carthage that almost defeated Rome itself was a colony of Tyre. They, they, they thought themselves so secure in this empire that they had built. And then verse 8, who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Beloved, no matter what earthly security you think you have, it will fail. This is why back in chapter 21, when it said fallen is Babylon, it says fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the carved images of her gods. Beloved, a a God in your life, a carved image in your life is anything in your life that gives you this sense of security apart from God. You may not call it a God, you may not call it an idol, 
It may just be a number in your bank account. It may be certain measures that you have taken to be confident that you are secure. But whatever that thing is that you say, aha, in this, I have peace of mind. In this, I am secure. Whatever that thing is, beloved, it is an idol to you. And it is a God. And these are the precise things that God says he will tear down. But beloved, the greater hope that we have is that we have more security in Christ than we can have in any idol of the earth. Any idol of the earth, no matter how secure it might make us feel, no matter how safe it may make us feel, it never can give us ultimate security. What can give us ultimate security? Christ alone can give us ultimate security. Listen to these words from Romans 8, 31 to 39. The Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You hear that, beloved? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, what could I lose? And it would matter. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Beloved, that's what was being spoken of Christians. They were being slaughtered. They were being killed all the day long. And yet, Paul continues on in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, what the apostle is trying to say there is that there is nothing in all creation. No calamity, no failure of the electrical grid, no shortage on the shelves, no problem that could ever come our way. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of Christ. And if nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, then why are we fearful? What what do we have to fear if we are secure in God? God himself is the greatest good. He is the ultimate satisfaction and he has an eternity prepared for us. Why are we fearful about losing earthly things? Will it be painful? Yes. Will it be sad? Yes. Will we have seasons of mourning? Yes. But we will be secure in Christ forever. And so, beloved, we have nothing to fear. And so the final thing that the gospel teaches us as a way to respond in the midst of calamity, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of troubles, is to look to eternity. Look to eternity. Again, Isaiah is making clear in page after page of these chapters of Isaiah that every nation on the earth is going to fall. 
Every strength that the earth thinks it has is going to fall. Everything on earth, beloved, is temporary. Everything. No matter how strong or permanent it may seem. As we read in 2 Peter, it will one day be burned up with fire. And yet, if we look to eternity, then we will know where we are secure. Again, as we read in John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you. Jesus gives his word to us. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Beloved, that is a promise. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Beloved, no matter what calamity may come, no matter what judgment may fall upon America or nations around America, we can take heart because we know that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He has secured an eternal home for us. In Revelation 21, we read something about this eternal home and we read that he will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes, that death itself shall be no more, neither shall there be pain or suffering anymore, for the former things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. Beloved, if we live in an anxious age, if we live in an age right now where people are given to anxiety and fear, we can look to an age that is coming where there will be no reason ever given anymore for any kind of anxiety, for any kind of fear, for any kind of loss. Because God himself will be our dwelling place. Because Christ Jesus himself died and rose again to prove that God has power over death itself and therefore there is nothing that we need to fear forever and ever. And so, beloved, let us be a people who are not proud in thinking that we can gain our own security. Let us be a people that trust in Christ as our security because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And let us be a people that look to eternity and not to the present day for our hope and for our security in these anxious times. And so when trouble comes, and it will come, Let us hope in God and know that he is for us and not against us. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, your ways are higher than our ways. And for that, God, we praise you because we surely know that if the world were being run in our ways, it would only be greater disaster, greater futility. And so, God, even though we do not understand your ways always, we do not understand your judgments, why your wrath must come, we yet know that you are good and that you do good. And so we do entrust ourselves to you, Heavenly Father. And I pray for this church in particular, Lord, that you would make us a people who are secure in the day of judgment. Would you make us a people who do hope in you, in the face of every calamity, in the face of every threat, in the face of all turmoil. Help us, God, not to set our hope in the things of this earth. But help us, Lord, to set our hope in you. 
Lord, I know trouble is coming. And I know that many of us are not prepared for the level of trouble that you have destined for this earth. And so, God, I pray that in your grace, you would help us to shore up our trust in you, even this morning, God, that we would bank in you alone and not in the things of this earth. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.